Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Thank you so much for downloading. My name is Renee Manderville, a project manager at the Indian Ocean World Center, or IOWC, at McGill University. I'm joined by Drs. Philip Gooding and Archisman Chowdhury, two postdoctoral fellows at the IOWC. Hi, Renee. It's great to see you again. Hi, Renee. Thank you so much for having me here again. Thank you so much for being here. Our guest today is Mira Muralidara, a teaching fellow and a doctoral researcher at the School of History at Victoria University, Wellington, New Zealand, and an administrator at the New Zealand India Research Institute in Wellington. She has studied history at Jawahar Nehru University, India, and Leiden University, the Netherlands. Her doctoral research studies cartography and botanical knowledge transfers in Malabar, a maritime region in southwestern India famous across the IOW for its pepper. Under the rule of the Dutch East India Company, the VOC, during the 17th and 18th century, her publications include Cross-Cultural Interactions and Missionary Writings in the Context of the Dutch East India Company circa 1600 and 1672 in Malabar in the Indian Ocean, Cosmopolitan in a Maritime Historical Region, and Dutch Missionary Literatures and the Creation of a Brahmin Identity in Kerala History Congress Proceedings 2016. So Mira, without further ado, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to have you here with us. Thank you, Renee, for that kind and generous introduction. I very much look forward to discussing my paper with you today. Um, so today Mira is going to discuss with us her paper entitled Hortus Malabaricus, Dutch East India Company, or VOC, and the production of natural history knowledge in Malabar between 1678 and 1693 which won her Research Excellence Award at Victoria University in 2019 and is part of her doctoral research. So first of all, Mira, can you just tell our listeners about the background of the research that you have undertaken? So what is it about and why did you feel that it was important to do this research? Sure. So let me first clearly indicate that I see my work within the scope of early modern science and environment. And the reason I say that is because I began my project with an interest in approaching early modern environmental history, which is closely intertwined with natural history production. The recent developments in the history of science, especially in the last two to three decades, have, developed me, have helped me in shaping an interdisciplinary work that uses multiple strands of historiography of trade, science and environment in the Indian Ocean region. Now, more specific to your question, my larger PhD work is on the theme of Dutch knowledge production in Malabar, or southwest coast of India, famous as the Pepper Coast for its production and cultivation of pepper. Now, knowledge production is a broad theme. Within this theme, I particularly focus on botanical and cartographical knowledge production by the Dutch East India Company in the region. And today I'll be discussing on the former, which is botanical knowledge production, by examining a 17th century botanical work, Hortus Malabaricus. And Hortus Malabaricus is a multi-volume botanical enterprise on Malabar plants with illustrations, descriptions of its medicinal properties compiled by the Dutch governor, Hendrik Adrian von Reder and published in Amsterdam between 1678 to 1693. 
Now, why was the study of Hortus Malabaricus important to me? As a history student, I have always known Hortus Malabaricus as a Dutch contribution to Indian botany. And with a growing interest in the history of science, I, in a way, wanted to revisit this very well-known source to question the idea of colonial knowledge or colonial science, to also, in a way, to complicate this picture of what knowledge production meant in early modern history, and to also see how political power dictated what knowledge was produced and who had access to this knowledge that was thus produced. Thank you so much, Mira. That sounds fascinating. Um, I'm sure that many of our listeners interested in botany and VOC archives are on the edge of their seats. Uh, so I will get back to you with another question towards the end of the podcast. But now I will pass over to our two postdoctoral fellows. Philip, do you have any questions for Mira? Thank you, Renee. And thank you very much, Mira, for discussing your work. Um, I'd like to ask a few questions about the colonial and intellectual contexts that inform your study. Um, one, I'm intrigued by your use of the term colonial bioprospecting. Can you elaborate on this term? Um, and two, in the early modern era, a corollary of effect of human migration and increase in maritime trade between Eurasia and the Americas was the movement of animals, plants, insects, microorganisms, and even viruses. Your research concerns transfer of botanical knowledge. In this respect, where do you situate the project of Hortus Malabaricus within the spectrum of other bioprospecting projects conducted by other colonial counterparts across the globe? In other words, what makes the Hortus Malabaricus a special colonial bioprospecting project? Thank you, Philip, for the question. Uh, so let me first talk about the term colonial bioprospecting. So the term was first used by historian Londa Skibinger in her work Plants and Empire in 2008, while she was describing the different attempts of European trading companies to compile and collect medical botanical knowledge in the Atlantic region. And I use this term in the Indian Ocean because I find that it's a very useful you know, uh, framework to look at various activities done by the missionaries, the officials, the merchants and traders, which all resulted in the production of natural history knowledge. And since then, since uh, the use of the term in 2008, many scholars have you know, interpreted and reinterpreted this term of colonial bioprospecting. And in a way, I kind of further push this term to also include another framework by Indian historian of science Kapil Raj, where he kind of sees this whole idea of knowledge production within the spaces of circulation and see how knowledge production was not a Eurocentric activity as such, but very much part of other, you know, very much present in other parts of the world. So in my work, I kind of further push that use of the term and also in a way, look at it more critically. Now, as, as you rightly pointed out, this is not one, this is not a single off project. There were many other projects on uh, combining natural histories. And the initial interest, I would argue, were mainly because of twofold reasons. The interest in medicine, because it was becoming a very profitable business back in the Republic and also in Europe. And also the European medicines could not, you know, survive the long sea voyages. So Europeans who are getting accustomed to this new nature and new tropical diseases needed medicines. So medicine was in a way the, you know, uh, the reason why the, these activities of natural history production accelerated in, during this period. Now, there, as you said, there are different other, you know, parallels to Hortus Malabaricus, like there is 
Plantarum silonicum on plants from Ceylon. There is Ambion herbales on the plants from Ambon. So there are other works. Now, what makes Hortus malabaricus important or significant? Uh, for me, at least, it's the very complicated nature in which the production occurred and the diverse expertise or, you know, um, diverse patrons and clients that one trader could bring in this production of Hortus malabaricus. And I find it quite fascinating that some, a work on Malabar botany later became popular in Europe as a work of European botanist. So this whole idea of appropriating indigenous knowledge systems and presenting to Europe as a, you know, to be accepted as, a, as part of the European classificatory system to me was quite interesting. And I think it's also one of the first comprehensive studies on Malabar plants. That's for me at least this was uh, the attraction to towards Hortus malabaricus. Yeah, I can certainly understand that attraction. Uh, thank you very much for that. Um, my next question relates to the reception of the Hortus malabaricus in the intellectual climate of the 17th century Dutch Republic. Um, the publication of Hortus malabaricus from 1678 to 1693, as you have argued, was fraught with difficulties over patronage from within the Dutch East India Company circuits, as well as with costs of publication. It was all the more remarkable because Adrian van Reed had left the Dutch Republic to return to Asia in the service of the VOC in 1684. Given this context, can you tell us about the intellectual reception of the Hortus Malabaricus in the Dutch Republic, where, as you argue, medicine and natural history were considered big science, with local physicians, Jesuit missionaries, and company officials all being involved in classification and commodification of nature? Sure, thank you for the question. Um, again, a number of recent publications have highlighted the importance of Netherlands as a focal point for understanding the emergence of new ideas and practices in the 17th, 16th and 17th centuries. And I think one of the key publications has to be Harold Cook's Matters of Exchange where he talks about how the 17th century commercial and intellectual climate in the Netherlands was quite conducive for the development of science. And another historian whose work has quite fascinated me is Vera Keller, where she argues how 17th century see this new trend towards pursuing science for public advancement of knowledge. And a prime example of this would be the development of Amsterdam Botanical Garden. And to show this garden as not just a center of study or examination, but also as something that they're contributing to the development of the city or this new urban space. So in a way, Hortus Malabaricus should be seen as parallel to also this development of new urban space that is you know, now being fashioned as modern and scientific and enlightened. And for me, the diffusion of indigenous knowledge in Hortus Malabaricus at least I argue that develop, resulted in three forms of intellectual networks. Firstly, in Malabar, it assembled a team of physicians, translators, and artists at the local level in the backdrop of VOC. And this local network was organized by one trader who had this political power to bring whom he wanted for the project. So again, there's this hierarchy within the local level and about who had access to knowledge production. And secondly, Wandrate's efforts again brought together an intellectual network of Dutch physicians, amateur botanists, 
artists, editors, and commentators who worked on the single focus of scientific study for the advancement of knowledge in the Republic. Now, the second network of people engaged in this network translated the local knowledge that was compiled in Malabar to fit into the scientific formats by reducing the local specificities to European accepted scientific categories. And I find that quite you know, interesting, that the way how the knowledge, trans knowledge was translated. Now, thirdly, the scholars attached to the East, English East India Company and the Royal Society of London, again, one of the key organizations in the development of science in Europe, used Hortus Malabaricus in their own bioprospecting efforts in the 18th century. And this can be you know, uh, understood from the different correspondences from English East India Company officials in London and the surgeons and doctors working in India, like in posts like, uh, in trading posts like Madras and Bengal. And they all, always refer to Hortus Malabaricus as this reference work with which they can identify plants in Asia. So in a way they use it as a reference work so this diffusion of knowledge of natural history of Malabar in Europe, in a way, indicates how science made local knowledge global. So VOC served as the apparatus that was used for the production of knowledge. And the value of Hortus Malabaricus could only be realized because it was brought to a region where botanical knowledge presented in this particular format was in huge demand. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Mira. Um, I'm now going to pass over to Archman um, for his question or questions. Thank you, Philip, and thank you, Mira. I would like to ask two questions. My first question builds up on Philip's last question, in fact. One of the lesser known aspects of the Hortus Malabaricus, as you have alluded to, is its significance as a work of art in the 17th century most of whose draftsmen or artists remain anonymous. However, the VOC, as you are aware, was a multinational organization that employed Belgians, Germans, French, and even Swedes. And Belgian artists did feature in the production of the Hortus Malabaricus. Did you come across examples where the Hortus Malabaricus might have influenced later botanical treatises and or, or collections that were prized elsewhere in Europe. Secondly, you have argued that the Western coast of India had been subject to serious botanical transfers since the 16th century, and that such transfers of natural knowledge passed through multiple layers, from indigenous physicians to translators of mixed ancestry to European colonial officials. In this context, I'm wondering if you could elaborate on how the Hortus Malabaricus might have drawn upon precedents during the Portuguese rule in Malabar and had later influenced natural knowledge production under British colonial rule in South India. Thank you, Ashman, for that interesting question. Actually, it's quite interesting that you pointed out about the diversity in the, you know, the artistic expertise within Dutch Eastia Company. Uh, but unfortunately, like in early modern scientific and natural history works, we seldom come across any credit to the many collaborators who are involved in its production. So even in Hortus Malabaricus, we know about the native, three native physicians who helped Van Rader in collecting and describing the medicinal properties, but even their contribution is reduced to that first one page preface of the volume. 
So we do not know exactly which part of the knowledge they did contribute. Now, as with, I mean, coming back to artists, unfortunately, we only have information of two artists who had signed their names under two illustrations. And this comes from the manuscript form of Hortus Malabarcus. So when I say Hortus Malabarcus, it has its manuscript form that was compiled in Malabar and its print form that were published after, you know, uh, 1678. So in the print form, most of these uh, artist names or the signatures are omitted because it was not in a way important to the botanist or the editors or the commentators who were working on Hortus Malabarcus. And also once the work reach Europe, Van Reed in a way kind of loses his control over what was printed. So the print form is in a way, you know, quite different or what we could argue is quite um, European in a way than its manuscript form. Manuscript form. Now I'm not, I'm not an art historian, so I haven't looked at the illustrations or the kind of art or the, you know, the form of art that were used in uh, Hortus Malabarcus, but all I can say is how much in history of science we forget that, you know, it's not just a tale of a linear progression, but it has all these minor communities of artists and draughtsmen who seldom got credit. So, and also as a result, we do not know them. One of the editors of Hortus Malabarcus, Jan Komelin, he was also the first co-director of Amsterdam Botanical Garden. So he later had a work on Cape Flora and also a work on the different plants in Amsterdam Botanical Garden, which is very much modeled on Hortus Malabarcus. So if you look at, if you compare the front pieces of both the works, it's very similar. And also the way he has described and also the way he cross references Hortus Malabarcus to show that this particular plant is also very similar to the plant referred in Hortus Malabarcus. So in a way it, yes, Hortus Malabarcus did have resemblance to some of the uh, you know, works that came later on. And also, uh, as I mentioned in one of the uh, other questions, like it, it later became as this reference book that botanists referred while they were describing other, other areas of Asia or Africa or to make sense of the plants that they didn't know in Europe or was not familiar. Now, the legacy of Portuguese colonial bioprospecting efforts cannot be undermined because the Portuguese presence, were quite Portuguese presence was quite strong in the region. And there were also many other works written by Portuguese physicians like uh, we have Garcia de Orta's work and Cristobal uh, da Costa's work, which were much, uh, you know, which had reached Europe way before Hortus Malabarcus. So in a way, Hortus, uh, the Dutch, bioprospecting efforts built upon this Portuguese legacy. And the interesting fact is Hortus Malabarcus, or the starting point of Hortus Malabarcus, was a Portuguese dra uh, a draft on Malabar plants by a Portuguese priest. But we do not know about which part of the work was used in Hortus Malabarcus in the final print because it's just, again, reduced to one page preface. So we do not know what exact information Hendrik Adrian Wandrede used for his Dutch work, but again, it was modeled on the basis of a Portuguese manuscript. And later, uh, though British, again, the British produced outside the purview of my project, but interestingly, I came across these references by William Jones, famous Orientalist, and Francis Buchanan, who, who was appointed to survey Malabar in 1807 by the British government who uses or who possessed Hortus Malabarcus. 
and i argue that they use this work to know more about the cropping patterns and you know the region because to make it a taxable commodity again because again the focus focus shifts right under the british period you we, we talk more about taxation and revenue and so in a way the focus shifts i would i would argue and much later in my research uh, to be frank exactly a day before i submitted i came across this manuscript in edinburgh library which talks about how one of the uh, english surveyor who was sent from scotland to malabar was given copies of hortus malabaricus so that he is well acquainted with the region before he goes to you know survey the land so which i thought was very interesting thank you mira i will pass it back to reni now thank you archisman and thank you so much mira for that very interesting answer um so before we end today's session i'd just like to ask one final um extremely broad question which maybe you could summarize and answer for us so i was just wondering how you think your research on hortus malibaricus speaks to early modern environmental history and the making of colonial science thank you for the question rene um so for me again as i said my starting point to hortus malabaricus was this idea of indigenous knowledge and how when we talk about science it's a it's, it's a loaded western concept right which kind of does not include the multiple knowledge systems that occur outside europe so rather than trying to say that knowledge making activities occurred in the periphery of colonial expansion i would like to see all these ind indigenous spaces or indigenous knowledge systems as independent knowledge systems which may or may not you know according to how you see science do not fall under the category of you know european way of seeing science so for me sources like hortus malabaricus which are quite popular reexamining such sources kind of give you a way to unpack the making of colonial science and how a large chunk of colonial science was appropriation of diverse knowledge systems and in a way kind of standardizing all these diverse knowledge systems to make it acceptable into a european audience and to try to fit into this european classificatory systems and the missing out of that you know the local specific cultures and different context in which the knowledge was actually produced so for me hortus malabaricus is in a way of critiquing what we know as what we know as colonial science and to the question of environmental history i think it also as i uh, i would like to again go back to what i said in the beginning you know to look at environmental history as a separate discipline i think is a very risky you know um, strategy i think environmental history should also be seen parallel or seen seen alongside histories of trade and science because it shows how the uh, you know human man nature interactions change over a period of many centuries from being curious about nature to for the need to study nature to possess nature to later commercialize nature and later to conserve nature so you see this focus shifting from early modern period of in the context of european colonial expansion to you know the contemporary society where we talk about conserving nature so for me environmental history should also be also be you know more broadened and include histories of science and trade to see it as something that has evolved over a period of many centuries in the context of european colonial expansion if if that answered your question 
Yes, it did. And it definitely added some more to it as well. Uh, thank you so much, Mira, for your wonderful answer, for your wonderful work. And I think that all three of us can definitely agree that we do believe that environmental history definitely spans outside of its own um, small niche category and intersects in other areas of history and other areas of study as well. Um, so thank you so much for answering our questions so well today and good luck with defending your doctoral thesis. We very much look forward to hearing about it. Um, thank you to, of course, Philip Gooding and Artisman Chowdhury for their questions. And thank you to you, our listeners, for downloading. Once again, my name is Renee Manderville, and you've been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.